I think printed for you in the bulletin is the scripture reading that I will be using tonight, uh, the moment uh, when Christ actually said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Um, and so we will begin reading out of Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 40. It is in the bulletin for you and on the screen as well. Hear now the word of the Lord. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. This is God's word. Let us pray again. Father, we do pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would empower the one who speaks and prepare the one who hears so that their soil will be the kind of soil that the seed of the word will find its way into their heart, take root and produce fruit in a changed life. And how we pray that your word that goes forth from your mouth will not return to you empty or void, but will accomplish your will and prosper where you send it. We trust that promise tonight and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Why did Jesus die? That's a good question for us to think about together tonight, especially on Good Friday. Uh, if any event transpired in history that is too high and too holy for us to comprehend, it would be the death of Christ. Uh, the depths of suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross cannot be plumbed. It's just too deep. His agony cannot be fathomed. His grief cannot be expressed. Christ was forsaken by the Father. Christ had always had a face-to-face -face relationship with the Father. In Greek, that's pros, P-R-O-S. He'd always, John 1 tells us, been with the Father, had that face-to-face. -face. And when you have the face of God in your life, that means he approves of you. He's close to you. He's near. He smiles over you. But we understand that on the cross for the first time in the life of Jesus, the Father's face turned away. And that's called cursing in the Old Testament. We'll get to that more in just a moment. But it was 
Um, a moment never to be repeated, full of depth. I would say the glory of God, our triune God, shined more at the cross than any other historical event except the second coming because I don't know what that's going to do. But that'll probably be great. Some would say the resurrection. But I think the cross, as far as uh, encompassing the whole nature of God being revealed, there it happened. I would be intimidated to even try to talk about this were it not for the revelation of God's word. Uh, because it gives us the meaning of his death on the cross. Anytime we discuss a, a historical event, and this was one, we talk about uh, the facts, the time, the place, the participants. But usually what is the most important thing to talk about is the meaning of the event. Why did Jesus die? I mean, couldn't God have simply said, okay, I forgive you. We don't have to go through this cross process. You know, I'm God. I spoke the world into existence by the word of my mouth. Nothing's too hard for me. I can do anything I want to. Can't I just say, okay, you're a bunch of sinners. You know, we'll get over it. Everything will be fine. No. Because if you know anything about the nature of God, God cannot contradict himself. He cannot do it. He cannot be God and not God at the same time and in the same relationship. And God is holy and God is just and something had to be done about our sin. Something had to be done about our injustice, about our offense, our debts toward him. Something had to be done because God is just. And so in the Gospels, we have a record of the events in the epistles we have the interpretation of those events. The people who witnessed Christ stumbling to Golgotha, who saw him delivered to the Romans and watched the crucifixion, understood the significance of this event in many different ways or a variety of ways. Some people said, well, it's just another execution of a criminal. He was uh, causing uh, treason and uh, trouble for Rome. He deserved to die. Caiaphas, the high priest, saw the death as expedient, that he had to die for the good of the nation, for political appeasement. The centurion, who thrust the spear in his side, said, Surely, we just read it, this is the Son of God. The two thieves, one, if you're the Son of God, come down off the cross and save us, the other, today, you will be with me in paradise. Pontius Pilate saw the execution of a Jewish king who had no faults. Theological speculation, the cross is a favorite theme and there are various schools of thought and theories regarding the cross. Some people would say the cross is simply an act uh, illustrating sacrificial love. It didn't really do anything with our, it's, it's just something we should all be grateful for and try to imitate by offering sacrificial acts of love toward others. Some would say it's a supreme act of existential courage. Others, it was a cosmic act of redemption. But we do have the epistles that give us the interpretation of the events that we see. And so tonight I want to talk about five things, five barriers that stand 
between us and God and how the cross address each one of these and uh, for all effects uh, cause them for the believer in Christ to no longer exist. And so the passion, the death of Christ, accomplished a number of things. It was an atonement, which means removing barriers to create a new relationship. Everybody born into this world has these five barriers that must be dealt with in order for us to be saved. And salvation, by the way, in the Bible is not a term that many people understand. It is removing someone from a place of astounding imminent danger and placing a person in a position of eternal safety and that's what happened at the cross we were rescued we don't need a little help from our friends we need a savior who will rescue us uh, from these barriers that separate us from our God that build as it were a wall between us and him and so the first one of those barriers is shame the shame barrier and that's a very powerful barrier and it all started in the garden because you remember that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden of Eden and in verse chapter 2 verse 25 it said Adam and Eve were both naked and not ashamed and yet after their fall into the sin and God came to fellowship with them in the cool of the garden there was a barrier and that barrier prevented them from enjoying a relationship with God and so they tried to weave clothes out of fig leaves to cover their nakedness and it didn't work and so God had an animal slain took the animal skins covered their nakedness ultimately pointing to the event of the cross and drove them out of the garden they lived the rest of their time east of Eden and the cherubim with flaming swords were at the entrance of the garden to keep them from coming back in and partaking of uh, the tree of life and so shame began then shame I think of shame I think of a number of biblical characters I think of the woman I mentioned in the gospel of Luke chapter 7 who came and anointed Jesus and washed his feet with her hair she was a prostitute and her whole life had been one of living in the shadows of experiencing shame shame there's a difference between guilt and shame guilt is I'm unworthy shame is I'm worthless I'm worthless I'm not enough I am not enough I could go into a rather lengthy defense of that over the temptation in the garden and the way Satan in the form of a serpent was so crafty in engaging that temptation. first he got the woman to doubt he got her to doubt God to doubt his word and then uh, so the fruit was something to be desired indicating what you're not enough God's holding out on you to truly experience life you've got to partake of that he, the reason he don't want you to eat that fruit is because you'll be equal you'll know good and evil like he does but at the end of the uh, event where both Adam and Eve sinned they were naked and ashamed 
And so the shame barrier is a real barrier. Sin is impurity. It's defilement that makes us unfit for community. It makes us feel dirty. It um, uh, bothers our conscience. It creates shame in a sense of being an unacceptable human being. Just not enough. But on the cross, Jesus was shamed and excluded so that we could be purified and cleansed from sin. I remember when Jesus healed the leper. Well, he healed 10 of them one time, but another time he just healed a single leper. And lepers, of course you know, had that disease and it was disfiguring. Fingers would break off, toes would break off, any joint would break off. They had sores that were oozing and bled and ran and they wore nasty clothing. I, I don't imagine they smelled very good. And as they approached Jesus, what they were supposed to do according to the uh, Hebrew law was hold their hand over their mouth and say, unclean, unclean, warning people don't get close to me because I will defile you. And the wonderful thing is Jesus heals the leper. He approaches the leper, he heals him, he makes him clean, he tells him to go see the priest. Though our sins be as scarlet, Isaiah says, they shall be as white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Christ went to the cross and experienced humiliation and shame so that we could experience acceptance and even glory and approval from our Father to be embraced with him. I've often talked about the kiss of the father, and that is the father of the prodigal son who ran to his son as he saw him in a distance. He smothered him with kisses and received that son back. And that's what God does because Christ went to the cross. He actually, the book of Hebrews talks about Christ. You know, in the Old Testament when they would offer up animals, sacrifice, and burn them, then they would take them outside the camp to dispose of them. Where guess where Jesus was crucified? Outside the city. Outside the camp. He was defiled by our shame and sin. And yet, because he did that, you can be clean. You can have a clear conscience before God. You can have a sense of acceptance that you've never had before. And you no longer have to be afraid of him. You no longer have to be ashamed of who you are. He knows you're a sinner. And he, knew, he knows that's why Jesus had to come to deal with that. The second one is the debt barrier. Sin is an obligation. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. When I sin against someone, I put myself in debt to them. And so every time I transgress, which means break a law, or I experience iniquity, which is twistedness or perversion, or I sin, which means missing the mark, every time I do that, I put myself in debt. And it's a huge debt. No man can pay it. When we cannot pay our debts, this entails slavery in ancient cultures, bankruptcy today. But on the cross, Jesus paid a ransom for us. 
he redeemed us, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. He redeemed us. It's a marketplace term. It's a commercial term to buy or to buy back, either purchasing or ransoming. The emphasis on the redemption image is on our sorry state, indeed our captivity in sin, made an act of divine rescue necessary. Propitiation, which we'll talk more about in a minute, focuses on the wrath placated by the cross, but redemption on the plight of sinners from which they were ransomed by the cross. We are ransomed by a price paid. He paid our debts, our sin debts. You ever had to forgive somebody? That's a lot of fun, isn't it? I don't mean to be facetious, but it's not a lot of fun especially if they did something to deeply hurt you. Why are you so deeply hurt? Because of a debt. And in order to forgive another person who's wounded you, what do you have to do? You have to pay that debt. You have to let it go. You can't get them back. You can't uh, have uh, justice and see them fall and be destroyed. You absorb the pain of that offense on their behalf in order to let it go. If you can't forgive, maybe you're not forgiven because once you see your sin debt, as huge as it is, you know why I don't forgive people? Why it's so hard for me to forgive people? I hate to admit this. Pride. Because I think they're so much a worse sinner than me, I would never do that to another person. By the way, don't ever say that. But number two, don't ever think that. And sometimes we like to hold on to it. It just feels good. It's a juicy morsel to hang on to, to hang on to that bitterness and grudge and resentment and hate. And it almost fuels us and energizes us in a very perverse way. But in order to forgive someone, you have to eat the debt. You have to do it. You have to absorb the pain. That's why it's so hard. What does forgiving somebody feel like? It feels like dying. It's exactly what it feels like. I didn't know that was going to get in there. Somebody must have needed to hear that. Yeah. Now, the cross removes our debt barrier. And the reason it does is because God took out of Jesus' hide what he should have taken out of my hide and your hide and your hide in everyone's hide. That's what that means. The next one is what? The power of evil barrier. There is a personal devil. There's some argument over where he came from. Some thought he was an angelic creature who brought worship to God uh, in the beginning or before the creation of the world as the angels worship God it was his responsibility to give it to God and he took it for himself if the book of Ezekiel is correct and that's what it's talking about and then he fell to the earth was cast out of heaven and he uh, is someone who is vindictive he tries to get back at God by destroying you and he holds unbelievers in the palm of his hand. 
He has power over them. He is the prince of the power of the air. He's far more powerful than anybody in this room. Far more. Got a lot more experience than anyone in this room. And he's a devil. He's a liar. He is, uh, and the father of it, Jesus tells us. Sin is an evil force of self-centeredness and power accrual that works in the world and in our hearts. And it uh, is a powerful force. You hear the Bible talking about principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That's the demonic realm and anyone who is an unbeliever walks, according to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, according to the power of the prince of the air. And so we're in bondage as unbelievers to Satan. And only through the cross can Jesus deliver us. Colossians chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15 is something you need to know if you don't already. And I know many of you do, but listen to it again. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You don't even know. Most of the time we don't even know about that. But my goodness, Jesus released us from bondage to the evil powers at the cross. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And so we've been released. We've been forgiven. We've had our Satan loves to the accuse. He is the accuser of the brethren. We see him do it to Job. We see him do it uh, in the book of Zechariah to the high priest Joshua. But that practice of his of coming before God and accusing us. Now we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous who says to that kind of nonsense, I took that in myself and I died for it and I buried it and I rose triumphantly over it. We're free from accusation. Jesus unmasks and disarms the powers through a complete reversal, through self-sacrifice and service. And so the cross removes the power of evil over us. Two more barriers, two more. If you're like me, when I used to go to church, why not one more? Why does it always got to be two more? I, w I was not a very good listener in my youth because I was just bored. And I don't know if this pastor's fault. I don't, I don't, as I look back on it, maybe he didn't preach much gospel. But I used to look at the building and count the number of bricks and multiply them in my head to figure out how many bricks were in the wall. That's pretty bored, isn't it? Huh? That's somebody that needs to get saved. God did save me later. But the next one, the next one is the hostility bearer. What hostility do we have? Well, Romans chapter 5, and we are going to be roaming around in Romans a lot here soon. But in chapter 5, he says this. For if while we were enemies... 
We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We are not born neutral. People try to tell you all the time that people are born neutral. No, they're not. The car carnal, fleshly, fallen mind is at an enmity with God and cannot submit to the law of God. There's a natural born rebellion in us as fallen creatures. There is a hostility toward God. Some theologians would even go so far, especially some of the ones that are in our tradition, of saying not only is there hostility, there's hate. There's resistance. There's rebellion. There's a genuine distaste, and that's a huge barrier. And what can change that? Sin is a broken relationship, refusing God, his right of centrality in our hearts. God is alienated from us. We are alienated from him. But on the cross, Jesus removes God's anger from us forever through propitiation. I've got a minute here. I'm going to talk about propitiation really quickly. To propitiate means to pacify or appease an anger. It gives us an image of a ritual or a ceremonial thing. Uh, virgins used to be offered and thrown in volcanoes to satisfy the pagan gods. And so a lot of people have a real distaste toward this word in Christianity. Why y'all got to talk about blood? Why y'all got to talk about all that kind of stuff. But propitiation is a wonderful truth. According to the Bible in 1 John 2, 2, he took away, canceled, uh, our debt, satisfied God's justice, and pleads our cause. The reason propitiation is necessary is that sin arouses the wrath of God. God is a God of wrath. He's not just a God of love. He's a God of wrath as well. In his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism toward evil in all its forms and manifestations. God wouldn't be good if he didn't have wrath toward that which is evil. And he does have it. And his wrath is very different from our wrath. It's very different from our anger. It isn't injured pride at all, but rather it is totally righteous. God hates evil. And so who makes propitiation? In pagan rituals, we do. Yet in the Bible, we're told in Romans 3, 21 to 26, that God propitiates himself. He pours out his wrath upon his son so he can be the just and justifier of those who come to God by him, by Christ, by sheer mercy and grace. A gracious God. What was, what was, what was a propitiatory sacrifice? The person, the Son of God himself, so then God himself answers all questions about divine propitiation. Listen to these. It is God himself 
whose holy wrath needed to be propitiated. It is God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. It is God himself who in the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sins and that evokes our worship. He releases us from the hostility bearer by taking the hostility upon himself. When Christ hung on the cross, there were three hours of darkness. Have you ever looked at the creation itself in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? And then read verse 2. And the earth was without form, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then God formed the earth, filled the earth by speaking his word. He created, let there be light, and on and on and on. And that's a picture of redemption. Christ went into the darkness. When he cried upon the cross, Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the curse of God. God turned his back on Jesus on the cross, turned his back, forsook him, left him, so that you and I will never, ever be forsaken by God. I don't care what you do. You cannot be forsaken by God if you're his, and you're in Christ. Christ has already been forsaken for you. If you are united to him, you cannot. And so Christ did that. To bring back the relationship, he removed the hostility barrier. He didn't do it to get God to love us. He did it because God does love us. The Father loved us. God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus didn't go to the cross to get God to change his mind and to remove the hostility because God didn't like us. God loved us. So much he was willing to lose his son for you. For his son to experience all of the curses of the covenant broken on our behalf. And so the cross is graphic. And it's horrible. And it's just... I remember R.C. Sproul in seminary once made this statement and I had to kind of... Think about it a minute. He said, there was no more grotesque or uglier being in the universe than Jesus hanging on the cross. Do you doubt that he loves you? How can you doubt that he loves you? How can you say he doesn't care about you? How can you say that he's forgotten you or he's forsaken? How can you say that? One of the ways you renew your love for Jesus and understand his love for you is how you renew your love for Jesus is going back to the cross. The depth of the sacrifice is equal to the depth of the love. And he was willing to give all of himself for us. He's the bridegroom. We're the bride. Every story of love, of any sacrifice by a bridegroom to attain a, gri, a, a bride pales in comparison to this. But the last one 
is he removes the barrier of guilt. Sin is a violation of God's righteous character and law. When we violate his law, that creates guilt. I'm not talking about feeling guilty. There's a lot of people who laugh if you were to tell them they were guilty. They'd say, no, I'm not. And I would say to them, you don't have to feel it to have it. But down in the depths of your soul, if you violate God's righteous character and law, that creates guilt. But Jesus stood in our legal place. He took the judgment we deserved so that we can get the treatment he deserves. He was perfectly obedient. So the cross removes the guilt barrier. Some metaphors have much more to do with the objective satisfaction of something within God that opens the way for our acceptance. Some have more to do with the subjective revelation of God's character <coughs> to us and changes the way we live. But no one metaphor alone can possibly convey the richness of everything the cross achieves. But running through all of them in a single theme of self-substitution will be helpful. And I'm moving toward the close here. God himself supplies what we should have provided. He is excluded, bankrupted, taken prisoner, and defeated. He receives God's wrath and judgment in our stead so that we can be accepted and liberated. What a Savior we have. Hallelujah, what a Savior we have. John Stott, who's written the best book I've ever read on the cross of Christ. If you don't have it, you ought to get it. The cross of Christ. It's just an amazing piece of work. I, I try to read it at least, at least read in it at least once a year, sometimes more. Here's what he said. The righteous, loving Father humbled himself to become in and through the only Son's flesh, sin and a curse for us, in order to redeem us without compromising his own character. The biblical gospel of atonement is of God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. And so the cross is the only way through the cross and what was accomplished there is the only way we can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you something. You can know all this. You can say every word I just said to you back to me, still not be a Christian. You may have known this for a long, long time and still not be a Christian. Why? Because something has to happen. It's called faith and repentance. When you hear the gospel message, it calls for a response from you. And what faith and repentance are essentially is stop trusting in yourself. You can't save yourself. Stop trusting in anything else to save you. Nothing else can save you. Put away everything you think you've ever done that puts God in debt to you as a righteous act. And come with an empty hand 
by turning from your life. Do a 180. Turn around. Return to the Father. Extend an empty hand and receive from him the greatest gift you'll ever receive. That's what a Christian is, somebody who does that, somebody who believes that. You may not can articulate it. I've been doing this for 45 years. You may not can say it the way I say it, but you know whether or not you've done it. You know whether or not whether that's what you're trusting. You know whether or not you have a relationship with God through Christ. And you ain't fooling anybody but yourself if you don't. Now, my heart's desire is for everybody in the room to know Jesus because he's the best friend and the best lover and the best savior and your best hope that you could ever hope or dream for. He loves you more than you could ever imagine or desire. Why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you? Come to Jesus. Trust in him. Jesus said, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. Rest in Christ, and he will save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for our time together considering the cross. So much more to say than what's been said, but I do pray you'll take what was said and use it to work deeply in our hearts, to make us more like Jesus, to save us, to deliver us from some of the messes we find ourselves in that are, are of most of the time our own doing. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may you be pleased uh, to bless us as we sing in Jesus' name. Let's stand together, and in closing, we will sing... Oh, sacred head now wounded.